So there's three things involved in the operations of short-term rentals, and that's cleaning, communications, and maintenance would need it. So we find a local cleaning person that is within a 15-minute are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? So when you're listening to this, you may still be in quarantine. It is pretty crazy out there, but I would say is just like everything else, we've come out of it and we've come out of it years later, not really thinking about SARS, not really thinking so much about 2008. It became a distant memory. So this at some point, even though we're in panic mode right now, I would say just don't be fearful and look at the bigger picture and all of your real estates will be okay in the long run. So look at it as an opportunity, look at it as an opportunity not to have as many multiple offers on everything. At some point, people will get a little bit scared and wait on the sidelines. This is our opportunity. So get cash ready and just count our blessings as well. Like I actually am pretty happy that if I had to do this globally, I'm happy to be in Canada. So we're gonna have more support, I think, than, than many countries going through this. And uh, when we look at the numbers, we're still not that sick, I guess, in comparison to many other countries. So I'm going to go up to the cottage. I'm going to enjoy the week. I'm, I'm still working remotely at this point in time. But you know what? There's no sense to panic. We're all in this together. Let's be strong for each other and uh, make this a memory at some point. I know it feels like a movie right now, <laughs> but at some point it'll be over and things will get back to normal. And yeah, so if there's a little bit of a dip, let's just look at it as rather than being scared and stopping all real estate transactions, let's just look at it as opportunities to get some really great deals under contract without having to compete against 5, 10, 15 other investors. But this is why buy on the fundamentals. There's a free fundamentals checklist on my website that you guys can download, but also find good cash flowing properties. They don't have to make a ton of cash flow, but they need to have some cash flow. And this could also be a good time as well to figure out are all of your tenants income sources the same? So by that, I mean, do you have them all on hourly? Are they all on salary working for the same type of industry? And this might be a good time where you might want to look in the future at diversifying the income types. So by that, I mean, you know, maybe have some tenants on disability or social assistance versus other ones that might have a salary in different types of industries versus hourly. And uh, you can still mitigate some of the risks, but uh, April 1st will be will be quite an interesting one. And uh, maybe those will, this will be the, the most amount of N4s going out. I don't know. Uh, but I will say there's a few things that came out of it that are good. Our government is allowing us to delay tax filing for June 1st. And there's going to be, if we owe money, no penalties until July. It's July 31st. Anyways, I put it on my Instagram and you can Google it as well, but there are going to be some leeway there. And for those of you that know me, I hate taxes and doing them in paperwork. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a nice little announcement despite the chaos. So on that note, guys, let's get on with our interview. I interviewed George Contreras a little while ago, and he's got a great story. I mean, he really started with the struggles and uh, his father passed away from alcohol 
when he was 12 years old. He definitely grew up surrounded by drugs, violence, and, uh, and you know, took the right turn to really change his life between, you know, when he was young and the cards that he was dealt and completely turned it around. And he has ownership in 1,200 doors today, lives in LA, California, does a lot of Airbnbs. We talk about that a lot. But, you know, at the end of the day, it just goes to show you it doesn't matter where you start from. And uh, if you have the mindset and you have the determination and you are not expecting to get rich overnight, things can happen and will happen through consistency and persistency and taking action. So on that note, guys, hope you enjoy the podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Jorge, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on. How are you? Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here and uh, bring some value to other listeners and viewers. Excellent. Excellent. Me too. So we connected through Mel and Dave Dupree, who were on my podcast, and they actually just recently also recorded on my other podcast, the Right Club podcast. And you came with great, great recommendations. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to asking you a bunch of questions. But before we start, a little bit of an overview, uh, if, you, if you don't mind, on you know, how you guys started in real estate investing and then you know, what you're doing today and what your portfolio looks like today. Yeah, great question. I got started with real estate 12 years ago. I was 20 years old and I was working for Bank of America as a personal banker and mortgage lender. So at a young age, I got to learn about, you know, different LLCs, corporation structures, asset protection, since I would set up the business checking accounts. And when somebody was doing a a purchase, refinance, or home equity line of credit, I would also do those in At the time, real estate investing seemed like this outside of the universe, super complicated, super unattainable, like I don't know if I'll ever be able to do a type of thing. And then I started like reading books, of course, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then in 2012, I purchased my very first property as a single family residence. And I had been very intrigued about house hacking and creating multiple cash flow producing assets out of one unit. And that's what I did. I turned it into three units. I bought a couple more single family residences where I added more and more units and to the point where I got a total of 10 units. And most recently, I've gotten into the multifamily space, especially last year and going full force with multifamily moving forward. So right now I am a passive investor in about 1,275 units out of Houston, Texas, and started doing monthly meetups. And I have a coaching program where, actually, let me backtrack a little bit. And then three years ago, I got very heavily into Airbnb, which is where the majority of my cash flow comes from today. So we have 14 Airbnbs. We own six, manage one for someone else, and have seven subleases. And uh, so Airbnb has been amazing, great cash flow. And like I said, now transitioning fully into the multifamily and going to be integrating the short-term and long-term tenant strategies. Amazing, so great (laughs) Great that you've got a lot of experience in in many different things. And I do wanna take a a minute to talk about Airbnb and then we can talk about the the multifamily. I don't think we've done a whole lot with Airbnb. So just to give you a little bit of background, so I have uh, my cottage that I Airbnb and it basically covers itself. We are actually moving out, the plan is anyways, the change, but moving out of our house to here and we're gonna Airbnb this house and move into another house that we're actually Burring. So we're doing a, a live-in burr and we're going to 
rent out the unit and hopefully everything goes well and we, we essentially reduce all of our living costs to zero in addition, of course, to the, the real estate. But for those listeners that are thinking, hmm, you know, should I do long term or should I do short term and the financing piece aside, because it is a bit more complex to finance that in Canada. But what are some of the pros to going the Airbnb route and what are some of the, the pitfalls and things to, to also consider? Great. So some of the pros with Airbnb is that if you're in an area where there's a lot of tourism, like usually near a convention center where there's year-round events or maybe a theme park, maybe a beach, anything that attracts a lot of tourism, there's going to be an opportunity for short-term rentals. And the reason short-term rentals is going to work well for guests is you could host, say, 10 or 12 people in a 3-2, maybe a 300 a night where they can cook together, have a front yard, backyard driveway, maybe a pool, a jacuzzi, a much better experience at a fraction of the cost. And as a host, it is more operation intensive, but you can still make an extra 25 to 75% more cash flow on a monthly basis just because of the innovative technology. Like Tony Robbins always talks about how the two most important things in any business is marketing and innovation. And that's exactly what Airbnb is. It's innovative technology. They are a customer acquisition company just like Uber and they bring you all the clients without you needing to do any marketing or any sales. Uh, some of the pitfalls is once you start getting to about maybe five, six units and more, you're going to start noticing like the phone's ringing. There's a lot of uh, maintenance, a lot of operations. And that's when you got to start thinking like a visionary business owner and start focusing on just the 5% of activities that generate 95% of the results and start building a team and operations and things like that. And that's really the biggest thing uh, that. And of course you want to make sure that the other pitfall is ordinances. They are outside of our control. So if a area, I think you call them providences in Canada, right? Provinces, yeah, provinces. <laughs> you know what? Starting in six months, you can no longer Airbnb. And if you just put a bunch of, you know, $10,000 of furniture and appliances, you're kind of like, Ugh, now you're stuck with all the stuff. So one of the things that I've learned where it eliminates 99% of the risk is if you focus your short-term rental business on co-hosting or also known as property management, it will require no money out of pocket and if something happens six months later, well, no problem. You could just walk away compared to investing all kinds of capital like down payments and having a mortgage. So I would not recommend purchasing a property if it only made sense with Airbnb because you don't know if that's going to, if Airbnb is going to be around in 2021 or, or in five years or in 10 years. It must make sense with a backup cash flow strategy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and you have to also look at the market. Is it saturated with Airbnbs or, you know, and maybe you can touch base on that. So like if you're saying, okay, you know, I am interested in, in Airbnb and it might actually work if I were to switch it and do something else with it, maybe there's a different exit strategy because you definitely always want to plan. Like you said, like for example, like Toronto that has different rules and regulations, right? So you can only rent out if it's your, your current residence and there's all of these regulations that they put into place into those big cities, but maybe an hour out of Toronto, half an hour out of Toronto, anything else, a cottage area, you don't have those rules and regulations, but it is good to still plan for it because you never know when things do change. However, let's just say I am a new investor and I just want to do Airbnb because in Ontario, the landlord tenant laws do not favor us. And I don't want to as well. I mean, you can always get stuck with that, but let's just say that's the, that's the reasoning. So with that said, I want to look for an area. How do I look for that area to Airbnb? What are some of those fundamentals? 
Yeah, so great question. Um, I'm pretty sure there's there's got to be a software that works in Canada. I have one that works only in the U.S. It's called MashVisor. And so all it is is a, a Airbnb or short-term rental like data collector. So it tells you how much money Airbnbs are generating in any area, what their occupancy is and what they're charging. You can click on the properties, look at their business model, what kind of setup they have in the bedrooms like bunk beds, queens, kings, amenities, location. And you're able to see how much it's generating and how much it would cost you to have a mortgage or rent just by running uh, some numbers. So I'm sure, pretty sure with a little bit of research, you guys can find some type of software. Maybe AirDNA will work since that, I believe, is a worldwide. How, how accurate do you think that stuff is, though? Because that would be my one question about it. How much information do they gather before they spit that out? And a lot of the time, for example, when I look at even just the average rental rates in an area, my regular rentals get more. So then I look at something like this and I'm like, well, am I, am I, you know, is this good and, and accurate or is it way out to left field one way or the other? Yeah, it's a great strategy. I mean, a great question. Uh, I don't know if it's 100% accurate. I don't have a way of knowing, but what I, what you could do is look at a couple different properties and see what kind of income they're generating. And maybe you could reach out to someone and maybe some people would be open to telling you if it's really working out or not. And some people might be like, oh, I don't want you to, it's already saturated, don't ask me. But maybe you could reach out to a couple of people that are actually Airbnb uh, in that area. Or I would go on social media and ask, hey, if you have an Airbnb in the area of this, can you please reach out to me and then speak to someone who's already doing it so that way you don't have to test the market. That's what I would recommend just to get some more insight. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. The other thing that sometimes I'll do is I'll take a look at the areas that are most similar comparables, and then I'll take a look at their calendar and then I'll take a look at their reviews and I'll see like how many reviews they have. And then I'll look at their calendar and see how full it is. And then the prices and I, I put that on a spreadsheet or whatever it is. And then just kind of do an analysis that way. I mean, it's nothing I don't think is ever going to be hundred percent accurate, but it's uh, it's definitely a good way to see because if you've got, nothing in your area is it because there's no demand or maybe there's just no supply and, and so that's that's also a hard thing to, to consider but it is quite interesting but there are some downsides like you you did mention you've got to furnish it and you've got to do all of this and and you know that is not cheap so what are some of the amenities that you're like i have to have this in my airbnb in order to, to get top dollar <laughs> Great question. I would say everything. You definitely need a washer dryer, some nice appliances. You definitely need something that people will look forward to staying, right? They're coming out here, they're putting money for a vacation or conference or for a family gathering, a business meeting, and they want to stay somewhere nice. However, I have learned that there is a clientele for every type of property so some people are going to be willing maybe 10 to 20 percent of people are willing to pay top dollar for like the luxury the really nice ones and maybe 80 percent of people are always just looking to save money and and be smart with that so i think either way there's going to be opportunity and then what you charge is going to be relevant to the value that you're offering but yeah it, it is true i mean airbnb is one of those things that has gotten very 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 popular 
And uh, I think it's starting to get into the direction where everyone and their mom is doing it. <laughs> and it could be saturated pretty soon. So definitely I would suggest that if somebody already has a property that is partially or fully furnished and you have nothing to lose, might as well give it a go. It could be the best decision you've ever made for your real estate portfolio. And then if it doesn't work, just mark up the rent slightly because you're offering a furnished property. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I recently contacted a, an insurance company just to see like if, because there's people that have floods and fires and, and they, they pay for them to find a hotel or something. So like, could this property be an option for them to, to say, well, you know. Yep. In one of my subleases I had, this was back in September, I had a, a relocation insurance company who their clients had water damage in their home. And so they put four people, it was a husband, a wife, and two children in our property, and they paid $4,000 for 15 days. And our rent payment on that property that we sublease is only $3,500. So it was awesome because we you know, made really good cash flow that month. And that is another strategy. There's so many companies that are always looking to house their clients and short-term rentals are a perfect fit. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals. And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the, the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. So that's interesting. So you talked about the rents and then the rent that you're getting on the rent. So are you renting like because you're also managing so are you renting these properties and then essentially Airbnb and, and the profit you're keeping? Or are you sharing with other landlord? And then, you know, how does that all work? Because a lot of people might say, you know what, I'd love to get into real estate investing, but I don't have the money. So, and again, there's always going to be some stipulations and some things like your landlord might not allow you to do that. But let's talk about that yeah. for a second. Yeah, it's a great strategy. So I remember when I used to work at the bank 12 years ago, somebody would walk in and they would deposit $10,000 and it would get like half of 1%. 
And then they'd walk out, somebody else would walk in and say, hey, I need a $10,000 loan for a car. And then the bank would lend this person, this person's money for like 10 and a half percent. And now the bank would make 10% and it's not even their money. So this is what you call infinite return on investment, massive, massive leverage. So currently I have seven Airbnbs that I do not own. I rent, I pay fair market rent to the owner and then I put it on Airbnb. So we call it Airbnb arbitrage. I pay the, the wholesale price and I market it at retail and the spread is mine. So here in, um, like I live in California and we have, I mean, pretty much anywhere in the US, we have really strong uh, tenant law. So that lease agreement, if you have in writing that you have permission to sublease, you are protected in the event of, of court. And so we rent it for a two, three year lease. Hopefully it's partially furnished so we don't have to put so much capital out of pocket. And then we run the business and full transparency with the owners. Yeah, I think that's important now because you're, you're probably gonna have to get some insurance for Airbnb. Now, is that the owner or is that your responsibility to show the owner that you've got an insurance? And I'm guessing like as, as a property owner, I probably want to also have insurance just in case this tenant decides to remove it. <laughs> Exactly. So we get renter's insurance since we are renting the property. The short-term rental insurance, there's companies that have started to come out, but it is still fairly new. So I would say probably 98% of people that are hosting on Airbnb probably don't have the right insurance because these companies are just now starting to catch up and say, hey, there's demand. Why don't we create a product? But it's been very difficult to find something. Yeah, absolutely. Just something to, to talk to your insurance broker about and, and also your landlord because uh, your landlord might not be okay with that. However, sometimes like you can be creative, you just offer them half of the profits or 20% of the profits or something along those lines and their answer might change, right? Exactly. Just create a win-win situation. Everybody wants to make income. So just find a way to make it work for everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great idea. So what about managing them? So they're short term, there's a little bit more hands-on management. How do you organize yourself as an investor or somebody that's gonna be managing and doing this, renting properties and re-renting them at, at retail, as you say? What's a, what's, what are a few good tips? Yeah, great question, Sarah. So there's three things involved in the operations of short-term rentals and that's cleaning, communications, and maintenance would need it. So we find a local cleaning person that is within a 15 minute drive from the property and we delegate everything that has to be in person. So all the replenishables, whenever you need more toilet paper, paper towel, shampoo, body wash, conditioner, they're in charge of replenishing everything, giving you a receipt at the end of the month and then paying them for the expenses. If the guests need a fan, a heater, extra blankets, they're in charge for handling all of that. And you, you give them all this information during the initial interview as to all the, all the scope of work involved in this opportunity. And we also are able to add them as a co-host to the Airbnb profile so that they have access to the calendar and you don't have to be communicating when to clean and when not. For the first one or two, I recommend the host to do the communications. Once you get to three and above, I recommend to hire virtual assistants. The two websites that I use is onlinejobs.ph for Philippines and virtuallatinos.com for assistance in Latin America. So I have in both areas, virtual assistants usually make about two to three bucks an hour. So for $30 a month per Airbnb, I have 24 seven customer service for my Airbnbs. The one in Mexico from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. my time, and the one in the Philippines from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. 
when it's daytime for them, it's nighttime for us. And thus we have 24 seven, just like hotels. And with the handyman, you just need someone that is good at almost, you know, uh, knows a little bit about a lot of things so that they could handle any minor things. As soon as they come up, they gotta be on a call. And I delegate my cleaning staff to contact them directly and then just keep me in the loop of the conversation of what's been, what's needed, what's it going to cost and all of that. And as long as you're able to delegate that, you just become like the glue, um, piecing all the pieces together. Once you start scaling to maybe over eight, then you need to hire someone to take care of that position, like being the manager. So you can become just a visionary and working on the business and not in the business. That's, that's brilliant. And you know, I have virtual assistants, but I, and I don't have enough Airbnbs right now. This, this will be three once we're done with the, with these venos, but, and then I, the Hamilton, the Hamilton one, but I, I have somebody else managing that, but it's a, it's a brilliant idea because I have VAs. I mean, they actually edit the podcast. They're probably going to be hearing this as, as they're <laughs> going through this podcast, but yeah. managing the Airbnb units, cause essentially it's communication. So now do they log in as you, or do they log in as, you know, like a co-host and, and so how did that all work? Yeah. I actually created like another Gmail. It's Airbnb manager 100 at gmail.com. I made that email, which is my email, a co-host. And I gave that login and password to the VAs and to the cleaning staff and everyone uses that and the VAs communicate through that email that I own. So you can always go back and then just see whatever communication happened, et cetera. Very cool. You can see it anyway, because in the thread of the messages between the host and guest, it's all one thread. So even when you log in with your profile, you can see what the VAs are saying. And, and yeah, it just makes it easy that way. So do you have them just contact you by email or like what if they need to phone somebody? We have a, um, a Skype phone number that we created and they can, that's the point of contact and they can call that number, which goes to our VAs. All right. So they just take turns based on their work shift in the hours. Very cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a great idea. Now, if somebody wanted to even start an Airbnb management company, like how do they go about like creating that brand? And, you know, like sometimes I'm, I'm looking and I'm hearing somebody will do it for 20%, 25% of profits. I mean, it could still be a good business also on its own. Like if you've got a handful of them and you want to manage other people's property, what are your thoughts? Yeah, because of the uncertainty with ordinances, like one of the things I've learned from my mentors is you want to build a scalable, sustainable, and sellable business. And due to the ordinances, it makes it unsustainable unless you know that, hey, this area just requires a license and you're good to go. That's a lot safer than when there is no ordinance in place because anything can change at any given time. So the beauty about the management is that once you have this expertise of operating Airbnbs, you can easily charge 20 to 30% of the gross without putting any of your money into the deal. So it's gonna be like 190 to 100% profit because usually the cleaning fee gets passed on to the management company and you charge 20 to 30% of the gross, not including the cleaning fee. And since you're just the glue as the management, you're not paying for repairs or maintenance. You're just piecing everything together and exchanging your time to provide a solution for the owner. And that's why uh, as of the last six months, this has become my favorite strategy because it's not capital intensive at all. So anyone that has little to no money, as long as they become an expert and gain the experience and knowledge, they can offer this service. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's brilliant. So I do want to take a little bit of a shift because you have more than just this strategy. You're doing a lot of things. And uh, 
and you're I'm interested in the passive investing and also the multifamily. So which one do you want to start first with? We can just go, I think it sort of all ties in with the multifamily and the passive. Uh, so talk so yeah, talk to can... me about how you got into that and, and what's the benefit of that? Yeah. So with multifamily, um, just economies of scale, right? If you want to grow and scale faster, you want to have more doors under the same roof. I think it'd be a lot easier to manage a 100 unit apartment building than 100 different addresses and locations yeah. where you got to have different <laughs> people, right? So I think just that idea is you could just do more with less. I think there's there's money to be, to be made everywhere. As long as the person works, you can make money selling ice to Eskimos if you're good at sales. I decided to go into multifamily. Here in California, it is the worst landlord state. So it's not good for multifamily investing, at least to my knowledge. So investing out of state, or we're investing in Texas, it's a very landlord-friendly state. And obviously what determines the value in apartments, multifamily is the net operating income, not so much comparables, right? So as long as you can increase the value by renovating upgrades inside the units, externally, landscaping, all that, you can increase the value than the operating income of the property and then sell it three to six years later. So really it's just economies of scale. It's just the next level. I feel that I could do a lot more with the same amount of effort. And so I, I invested into my first deal about four months ago the general partners acquired a portfolio of 1,275 units out in uh, Houston, Texas. And we, me and my business partner invested passively. So uh, for anyone that's not really familiar, when you're getting into multifamily, there's really three ways to get involved. You can be a general partner. You're the one who's actually raising the equity, acquiring the asset, management, the man managing the management company, basically hands-on, boots on the ground, being very involved but you make a lot more money because your time's involved. And the LPs, the limited partners, your, your money's just working for you and you get paid based on how much money you invested and then the returns on the property. And the, 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 those are really the most two popular ways. So we got started with as a limited partner, but so that we could get our feet wet, get the ball rolling, but our main focus moving forward is going to be uh, being general partners, acquiring, raising the equity, and just leverage syndication, right? You could buy a $10 million apartment that's gonna require 3 million down and you could put 50 or 100,000 of your money, raise all the rest, but still make the most amount of money while revitalizing these communities. Yeah, absolutely. It is really interesting. And, and you know, it is different than a joint venture partnership because you're a syndication, you've got multiple partners. So, so for those of us or for those of people at home, you know, they might've heard the term syndication. But it is different than joint ventures. And I think it's important to, to talk about that just for like a couple of seconds, if you wouldn't mind, you know, just addressing what a syndication is and, and how that differs. Yeah. So let's imagine that I'm acquiring a apartment building for a million dollars and the equity that I need to raise is say 30% because of the loan to value ratio, right? The bank's going to give me 70%. I need to come up with 30% as the equity or as a down payment. Well, I may not have the $3 million. And even if I did, there, I would lose leverage if I used all my money. Because what I want to do as a general partner is diversify into multiple properties. And so I could put $100,000 of my money, raise $2.9 million from other people's money, 
and pay everyone a preferred return based on the amount that they invested. So for example, I might say that the, pre the preferred return is 8% year over year. And over five years, they're going to get 40% on what they invested, but they might get another 40% at the sale of the property. So they can get like a, they can pretty much double their money in four to five years as a projected return. So that's syndication. It's bringing other people together collectively to buy. So multifamily is a team sport. And that's why networking and building relationships with other people that want to make their money work for them, you know, is so important. Yeah. And I will add, like, it is quite complex, like definitely work with a really good lawyer and a really good accountant. And you also have to be really careful on what you're promising and who you're speaking to and how you're speaking to them. You know, you hear sometimes the stories of people saying you're going to make like 10% guaranteed. That's the stuff you got to be really, really careful of. If you're, if you're wanting to start a syndication, just understand the legalities of it as much as possible and have a really good lawyer and a really good accountant and uh, a really good team in place. Cause a lot can go wrong very fast. Exactly. It's actually illegal to promise people certain returns because if something goes wrong, you could be held accountable. So in the legal documentation, it actually says that you could lose your money because you can. I've heard of a few people that I've met in the last few months that say, yeah, I invested 50 grand here, 100 grand, and I'll never see that money because they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't underwrite the deal. So anytime you're investing, even if you're a passive investor, you want to underwrite the deal yourself. Make sure you understand the market. You know, make sure that there's job growth, population growth, rank growth, and all the different, uh, you know, the right demographics, the right income. Make sure that you're not investing like into a D area, preferably a BC area with some value add opportunity. So definitely want to understand the process. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Let, let's talk about ABCs and Ds for a second, because I know everyone has a different way of, of writing it. And in a, in a lot of where we're going, there's not the same type of like D areas that you guys would have. So from what I understand anyways, there's like ABC and D areas, and then there's ABC and D properties. So there's, right. there's two ways of writing them. So what makes <laughs> <laughs> Like if, so let me start with the area first, sure. the way I've always understood it is I look at the eight areas as areas as like multi, um, sorry. Yeah. Multi-million dollar. Let's look at single family residences, single family residents. And it's worth like 5 million, 10 million, 20, 30, just super high end. It's mostly owners in that area. And then the exact opposite, you have the D area. Some people call it the war zone. There's high in high crime and low income, high crime, low income, gang activity, drug activity, not the safest place to, to raise a family or to have Airbnbs or, or to really live and walk <laughs> across. Yeah. yeah. Like really probably any time of day. <laughs> Definitely not. A day. And, um, and again, there, there's, you know, anytime there's less money, there's more scarcity, more fear, more problems. And that's usually the areas where people don't pay their rent on time. People don't have good credit scores. And so that's the D area. And then in the middle, of course, you have the B and C. So when you go from, when you, when you go from D to C to B to A, there's more and more owners. When you go from A to B to C to D, there's more renters. And so the B and C is like a sweet spot. Probably the best place to have rental properties, in my experience, is a C area that like, it's a good area, but it's not the best area but it's not a bad area like it's a decent area and there's a lot of renters there's more renters than there is 
homeowners. So if you buy a property there, there's more opportunity. And, and then as far as the actual physical property itself, like if you do a brand new construction in a D area, you might have an A property in a D area because it's brand new construction with nice amenities, which probably wouldn't fit the demographic, right? Usually a lot of new construction is in the A area. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's like, that's a concern, right? If you're a new investor and you're buying and we don't really have D area. So like, I mean, again, there's no like a set rule of like, this is exactly the definition. I think everyone kind of has their own. It's somewhat all similar, but let's just say we have A, B's and C's. You're not going to renovate like you would want to live in a, a C property and probably not even a B property. So when I look at, so usually I'll buy like a B property somewhere, you know, B plus, B minus, et cetera, probably somewhere in the minuses plus, and then I'll renovate it, but I'll renovate it to still be a good, like a good place, but I don't want to renovate it to my standards because it's not going to cash flow once I put all that money in. So just something to keep in mind, renovate for the type of property that, that it is, but also the rent that you're going to get and the, the area that it's in, because no matter what you do to a house, it has a maximum amount of value, right? So you buy a house in a certain area, no matter what you do to it, it's still gonna be worth that because it's in that area as a maximum. Exactly. Just like if you're, if you're flipping properties, so you're gonna buy, fix, and sell something compared to if you're gonna buy, fix, and rent something, you want much higher end if you're gonna sell it, but if you're gonna keep it, depending on your area demographic, you might, want to, you, might, you might want to go like medium grade, medium nice, medium expensive on everything and not over because there is such thing as over rehabbing if you don't really understand uh, your, your demographic and market. No marble floors for renters. <laughs> I don't even do that even for me. <laughs> But uh, okay, awesome. So it definitely, you know, you need to come back on the podcast and we can keep talking and talking. But the next part of this, uh, this podcast is our lightning, lightning round. So I'm going to ask you, Jorge, a series of five questions. You're going to give me the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Ready. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buy my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself. And she works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, 
mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis. It was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com, or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com, and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. And now back to the show. All right. Question number one, what's your favorite real estate investing book ever? Favorite real estate investing book ever. Best ever multifamily syndication. Okay. Who wrote that? Joe Ferris. Perfect. Awesome. Actually, I was on his podcast. If you haven't yet, you uh, you might want to reach out. And uh, I think he does a podcast today, doesn't he? He does it like every day. Yeah, <laughs> he, does. he does. So actually, that's question number two. What is your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast. Oh man, that's a great question. I am going to go with the Rich Dad podcast. Okay. All right, that's good. Robert Kiyosaki. <laughs> so number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate? For fun. I love playing sports like basketball, volleyball, working out. I love vegan food because I'm vegan and I love being by the beach and being with my wife and daughter. All right. Very cool. You know what? We're doing this vegan thing for a month just to see if we feel better and more energetic after, after watching that, uh, that YouTube documentary. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's been two and a half years for me and it's been a blessing. Nice. We got to talk about that as well on the side. <laughs> so number four, if you lost all of your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? How would I start again? I would build relationships and bring value instead of money. So just like if you have, someone has $10,000 and they approached me right now and I didn't have any money or I approached them, I said, look, I can bring my expertise. You bring the money because you need both to be successful and create a win-win relationship. Okay. All right. Very good. Last question. If somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Yeah, great question. I would make sure to invest into you. The best investment you could ever make is in yourself. Figure out a niche strategy that you want to be successful at, at. That's number one. And number two, find someone who is already very successful and that already has the outcome that you want and hire them to be your mentor so you can go bigger, faster, stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. So where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more? I post a lot of content every day on Instagram. So it's my name, but right before my name, it's a T-H-E, the Jorge Contreras. And yeah, I'd love to connect. All right. Do you want to spell it out? Uh, yeah, it's a T-H-E, like the, and then it's Jorge Contreras, J-O-R as in Robert, G-E. And then last name is C-O-N as in Nancy, T-R-E-R-A-S. Okay. Amazing. Any final last words of advice for the listeners? Yeah, keep listening to uh, Sarah's podcast. Continue to educate yourself. One of my favorite philosophies is that poor people entertain themselves and wealthy people educate themselves. So keep reading books, keep listening to podcasts, and more importantly, take massive action. Absolutely love it. Amazing. Jorge, thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. And you know, enjoy the nice sunny weather over there in California. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I appreciate it, Sarah. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.